Well, I invite you to turn back with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to be preaching today from verses 14 through verse 18, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to give you by way of a title, Idolatry and Communion. Idolatry and Communion. Two subjects, two themes that we don't often associate with one another, but the the Apostle Paul associates directly with one another uh, by way of teaching on this subject of meats sacrificed to idols. I I teased uh, uh, around giving you the the title Bread, Wine, and Devils, but uh, we're going to go with idolatry and communion this morning, and we'll follow the Apostle Paul on this train of thought uh, as he is answering a most important question posed to him by the Corinthians. That question, of course, is the validity, or should I say the permissibility, of eating meats sacrificed to idols. And he began this discussion really back in chapter 8, and uh, he will conclude it at the end of chapter 10. So we're drawing near the close of his, his discussion on this question, and we'll look at verses 14 through 18 this morning. So let me read to you. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 18. These are the words of God. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. R.C. Sproul once said that the most basic sin in the world is the sin of idolatry. It was this sin that caused Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden tree as they thought that it would make them wise like God. It was this sin that caused Cain to devise his own way of worshiping God and reject the prescribed way of worshiping God. And instead of offering a bloody sacrifice, he offered the fruit of his own hands, which ultimately led to the murder of his brother Abel. It was this sin that caused the children of Israel to fashion a molten calf in the wilderness while Moses was atop Mount Sinai receiving the law. It was this sin that caused Nadab and Abihu to offer strange fire before the Lord, and they were consumed in that fire. It was this sin that repeatedly caused the nation of Israel to lust after other gods and be exiled into Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. And it is this sin that caused the Jews to reject their Messiah and crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is replete with instances of God's people committing this dreadful sin of idolatry. This is why God must frequently remind them, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. But sadly, brothers and sisters, in the New Covenant, not much has changed. As Calvin famously remarked, our our hearts are perpetual idol factories. God created man with an innate desire to worship. 
The question is not, do you worship? The question is, what do you worship? And unless you are exclusively satisfying your desire to worship in the one true and living God, in the way that that God has commanded you to worship Him, you are committing the sin of idolatry. As we've said before, preaching through this chapter, an idol is anything you love, serve, or fear more than God, or as though it were God. But what Paul will now demonstrate is that what makes idolatry so perilous to our souls is not the physical acts of false worship, but rather it is the reality of what's happening in the unseen realm when we engage in the sin of idolatry. All idolatry is ultimately rooted in lies and deceptions about who God is and how he is to be worshipped. And our adversary, Satan, is the father of lies. And this means that behind every idol and behind every false religion and every pagan element of worship is a satanic force, an element of, of worship that is fueled by a demonic power that furthers the deception of the idolaters. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, when he says, But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. What Paul will argue is that when we participate in idolatrous acts of worship, we enter in to a mystical fellowship with other idolaters and the demons that propagate the idolatry. Now, anytime you speak on the subject of spiritual warfare or demonic activity, there's always a, a, a visceral reaction. Uh, perhaps you're having this reaction now. I had it. You cringe because of all of the, the, can I just be unsanctified and say all of the nut jobs out there that want to uh, make such a big commotion about demons and ghosts and goblins. But we better not swing the pendulum and pretend as if there's no such thing as demonic force and devilish power. There is, brothers and sisters, and spiritual warfare is a very real thing. And so Paul will say to the Corinthians that when you flirt with idolatry, you are inviting demonic activity into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and into your own life. And therefore, you must flee from this idolatry. The way he makes this argument is astounding. Paul proves his point by arguing from the nature of the Lord's Supper. He said... Paul, how does engaging in idolatry bring me into fellowship with demons? And Paul answers by saying, well, let me explain to you how the Lord's Supper works. And really, this, this thought goes from verse 14 down through verse 22. Uh, in my preparations, I realized that I would not make it through all of that in one message unless I was going to significantly cut out some things that are very important for us. So we're, we're not going to make it through the end of that text but we are going to spend a considerable amount of time looking at the foundation of Paul's argument. 
Let me state his thesis and then spend the rest of our time unpacking it. Here's Paul's thesis in these verses. Just as the Lord's Supper, properly observed, brings the church into communion with one another and with Christ, so too do pagan acts of worship bring idolaters into fellowship with one another and the demons associated with the idolatry. Therefore, Christians must strive with all their might to flee idolatry. We see from this thesis that our Apostle Paul was was a master of rhetoric and logic. And um, I, I am oftentimes amazed as I'm reading the Pauline epistles, and really especially Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, at the, the, the logical progression of Paul's thought. There's so much you can learn about uh, thought formulation and, and even pastoral ministry and the way Paul deals with issues uh, that are almost to me, maybe this is just the way my brain works, but almost to me just as amazing as the truth of what he's saying itself. The way he argues and the, if you can follow his thought process, it's just amazing. <laughs> but the, the philosophers of, of world history, the Aristotles and the Platos and the Zenecas and then the, the, the guys of our day, the Jordan Petersons, they don't have anything on the Apostle Paul. Okay, So let's let's follow this train of thought. Remember the context of the discussion, as I've said, he began dealing with this issue in chapter 8 because the Corinthians had sent a letter to Paul, and in that letter, they asked a number of questions. And one of those questions that they asked concerned eating meats sacrificed to idols. Eating meats sacrificed to idols. While admitting that there was nothing inherently sinful about eating the meat, Paul urged the stronger brethren in the church to abstain for the sake of their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. That was chapter 8. And he admitted that because here's what was happening. The pagan temples would have their feasts, they would make all of this meat, and then the leftover meat, they would sell at the market. And Paul said that a Christian was not necessarily committing sin if they went to the market and bought the meat and they, they, knew that, they knew that they were not committing idolatry, they were not eating the meat as unto the false gods, they were just buying the meat at the market, taking it home and using it to feed their families. And Paul said doing so is not sinful in and of itself. And uh, this, this brings up an interesting point. If... If we are going to make the argument that anything started by a pagan or any invention invented by a pagan is inherently sinful and pagan, we're not going to have very many things in this world. Right? So that's what Paul is saying here. However, however, he now has to deal with a subsidiary issue. Not only were some of the Corinthians eating the meat, some of them were even participating in the temple feasts two totally different issues here's what was happening some of the Corinthians were going down to those pagan temples and they were partaking in those pagan feasts and they were justifying it by saying well Paul said that it wasn't sinful for us to eat the meat are you seeing where I'm going with this we can very easily abuse what the Bible permits 
and twist what the Bible permits to endorse and justify ourselves in doing something that the Bible doesn't permit. Going to the pagan temple and partaking in the pagan feast while professing Christianity is not Christian liberty, it's idolatry. And what Paul is doing in this section is he's clearing up the abuse of his previous allowance and he's explaining it with no uncertainty that they cannot use his admission of the permissibility to eat the meat as a license to partake of the temple feasts. It just doesn't work that way. Now before we jump into this text, I want to share an observation with you that I found particularly striking. In the Christian life, there are many practical questions about whether something is or is not sinful. Uh, In pastoral ministry, one of the common questions you will receive is, Pastor, is it a sin for a Christian to do A, B, C, fill in the blank? And the struggle for us is to answer in a way that is not antinomian, that is not legalistic, but rather that is balanced and biblical. And as I'm reading this section, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. The legalists would call Paul an antinomian for admitting that it is not sinful in and of itself to eat the meat because the legalists, they want you to just, if it's questionable, just prohibit it. End of discussion. Very simple. No Christian liberty. Don't do it. That's the, that's the mindset of the legalist. But the antinomians would call Paul a legalist for uh, taking such a strong stand on the potential dangers of idolatry. Charles Hodge rightly recognized that Paul understood that by going to the verge of the allowable, they might be drawn into the sinful. I had a professor one time that said, if half the people are calling you an antinomian and half the people are calling you a legalist, you're probably right where you need to be. And so I've tried to live by that mantra. Now, in our context today, let's, let's apply this. In our context today, we're not confronted with the question of whether or not it's sinful to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, the Buddhist temple in Paris makes the best prime rib there is. I don't even think we have a Buddhist temple, praise God. But they make the best prime rib there is. But, you know, I just, I, I just don't know if it's, if it's okay for me to go down there. Never been faced with that question. But here's a question that we are often confronted with. We can apply this in so many different directions, but what about this one? Pastor, is it a sin for a Christian to consume alcohol? Is that not a question that hinges on these same principles? I think it is, right? Well, we can answer that question like a legalist. We can answer that question like an antinomian. Or we can answer that question biblically like Paul. Are there dangers associated with the consumption of alcohol? Oh, absolutely. Is there a potential to fall into debauched and embarrassing sin and ruin your testimony? You better believe it. The legalist sees those dangers and he rails against alcohol and he beats his pulpit and he says, if any member of this church even thinks about consuming alcohol, you are going to hell. It's a legalist. I've even heard men try to make the argument that the physical liquid itself, the material itself, is inherently wicked and sinful. 
And when you ask them, why do you take such a strong... Well, because I see the dangers that it leads to. They see a valid danger. They answer in a way that's not biblical. It's legalistic. Well, the antinomian, on the other hand, they, they thumb through their Bible and they don't find a verse in plain black and white ink that says, thou shalt not consume alcohol. And so they turn a blind eye to any of the potential dangers... And in the name of Christian liberty, falsely so-called, they behave in a way that is inconsiderate of their brothers and sisters. And in many ways, just downright foolish. And what Paul shows, by the way that he deals with this issue, is that there's a third way to handle such questions in the church. We don't have to be the legalist. We don't have to be the antinomian. We can recognize Potentials, we can recognize dangers, we can caution against sin without condemning what the Bible does not condemn, nor allowing what the Bible uh, does not allow. And I know this is not the primary emphasis in our text, but it's an important application that I, I felt would be beneficial to share with you. And this is how I want us at Christ Fellowship to navigate these issues in our church family. I don't have to tell you when it comes to so many practical issues alcohol being one of them, dress, music, whatever, you name it. In this little church, there's a wide variety of opinions and convictions. And we ought not be legalists who want to impose our convictions on our brothers and sisters. But we better not be antinomians who live no different than the world and call it Christian liberty. I share this with you because it's helpful for us to understand the context and the nature of this discussion. Had Paul, do you realize, had Paul just said to the Corinthians, don't eat the meat, it's sinful to eat the meat, stay away from the meat, he wouldn't have had to spend three chapters on this issue. He's spending three chapters on this issue because even though it's harder, even though it takes more time, Paul is committed to being biblical. And if that means fleshing things out, answering questions, he's going to strive to follow the word of God. He's going to strive to follow the principles of the gospel. I was convicted by this in my own thinking. I think sometimes the tendency and the temptation for me is to be Mr. Legalist and just say, well, there's questions, so don't do it. Condemn it. Forget about it. And I have to remember that while I can abstain from things out of personal conscience and conviction, I can't condemn things that you do if the Bible doesn't condemn them. Vice versa. So maybe we be like Paul, who who wants to just be biblical and follow the principles of the gospel. I have three things in this text that I want to show you. Let's jump in here at verse 14. The first is the admonition. The admonition. Notice how Paul says, or how Paul starts. He says in verse 14, Wherefore, and this is calling our attention to all that he said thus far. Uh, namely, specifically, the examples of the of Israel in the wilderness and the punishment they faced for their idolatries. I had a blast preaching through the first 11 verses of this chapter, looking at the Old Testament history and the examples of Israel. And Paul says, okay, based upon all of these examples I've now given you, wherefore, my dearly beloved, all throughout this epistle, even in the midst of sharp confrontation, Paul is motivated by a love for this church. Paul loves the Corinthians. Paul loves them. He, he sees all their problems and all their struggles and all their sins, all their immaturities, and he loves them. 
May we learn from that. He says to them in chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul was not so high and mighty as to not claim the Corinthians. He was not worried about how uh, the, this church might hinder his reputation. He, he wanted the world to know, they're my people, and I love them, and I'm going to shepherd them, and I'm going to pour out my love upon them and help them in any way that I can. And it was because of his great love for the Corinthian church that he admonishes them against idolatry. As Paul knew, Paul, Paul knows that idolatry always and only leads to misery and destruction. There's no other destination for the sin of idolatry because idols listen idols never deliver on their promises an idol may promise you joy and fulfillment and pleasure but it will never deliver that's why idolaters never rest that's why false religions almost universally are based upon personal performance and a maintenance of good works. And the hope of almost all false religions is you die, you stand before God, you cross your fingers, and you hope that your good works outweigh your bad works. False religions are based upon you must do. Christianity is based upon he has done. True joy and rest and satisfaction can be found in Christ alone. And idolatry robs you of experiencing Christ. So Paul says, flee it. Flee it. Furthermore, by addressing this admonition to believers in the church, Paul is teaching us that while idolatry is the sin of all unbelievers, all unbelievers commit the sin of idolatry. Why? Because, as we've said, you were made to worship. They are worshiping something. And if they're not worshiping Jesus Christ, they're worshiping an idol. Could be the idol of self, <laughs> could be the idol of secularism, humanism, the idol of Islam, the idol of Hinduism. They're worshiping idols, not the true and living God. But here's what Paul teaches us. By addressing this to my dearly beloved, he's teaching us that this is not only a sin that unbelievers commit. So do not think this morning, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I don't commit the sin of idolatry. It is possible for you to have a saving relationship with Jesus and to truly worship him and yet, in some areas, in some instances, be found guilty of the sin of idolatry. So this is for you. This is for me. It's for all of us. And what is the admonition? Flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The command to flee is commonly found in the imperatives of the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul. We've already seen it in uh, this book of 1 Corinthians. To flee is to escape, to run away, to bolt, to evade, to avoid, to get away from. Fleeing is what Joseph did in Potiphar's house. He, he did not uh, try to put on a pious stand. He ran. He ran. In a day when many Christians want to see how close to sin they can get without falling, God tells us that we should be striving to keep ourselves as far away from it as we can. Amen. Flee. 
flee, flee. No, you're not strong enough. No, there is no virtue in, in your futile resistance. Just flee it. Just run away from it. Amen. The reason why we fail to flee is because we don't understand how dangerous it is. My son sticks his hand in the fireplace because he's enamored by the allurement of the flame, but he doesn't understand how dangerous the fire is. Sin may seem pretty at first, but I promise you, it will burn you. Paul doesn't want to see any of the Corinthians burn in the sin of idolatry. They don't want to see that for any of you. So he calls the church, in verse 14, to exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ. Exclusive loyalty. Now to us this seems obvious. If you're a Christian, then of course you are loyal to Christ alone. But I want you to remember that Paul is writing to a church steeped in first century Greco-Roman polytheism. The, the religion prevalent in his day was a religion of a multitude of gods. Look at the, the ancient mythologies of, of Roman religion and Greek mythology. And the monotheism of Christianity, the idea that we are to be loyal to one and only one God, was a radical concept to the Greeks of Paul's day. The Jews would have been familiar with that, but the Corinthian church was primarily a Greek church. They were a people who worshipped a multitude of gods. And some held to the damnable belief that Jesus could be added into their panoply of deities as another one of the gods that they worshipped. Did you know that Jesus is a god in Hinduism? He's a god in Hinduism. Did you know that Islam recognizes Jesus as a great prophet? But it's not enough to have the name Jesus Christ if you don't understand who he is. And so this radical idea in Paul's day was if you are a Christian, you are loyal to Jesus Christ alone and all other gods you forsake. Therefore they reckoned because they they believed that they could just add Jesus into their their panoply of gods that they worshipped, they reckoned that they could go to church on Sunday and observe the Lord's Supper, and then they could go to the temple on Monday and partake of the pagan feasts. And Paul has to interject and to declare to them that implicit to following Christ is a forsaking of all others. And what they think is permissible is idolatry. Well, we may not be steeped in a culture of Greco-Roman polytheism, but we are likewise a culture steeped in conflicting loyalties. I'm afraid that perhaps some of you don't understand the implications of what it means to follow Christ. Perhaps you think that becoming a Christian means adding Jesus to the same worldly and sinful lifestyle that you lived before he saved you. And you've added a little Bible reading here and there. You've added a smattering of church attendance. You've added a few prayers in the mix. But you've kept everything that characterized who you were before you say that you encountered saving grace. Let me remind you of the words of Jesus in Luke 14 and verse 33. Jesus said, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
There is a call to exclusive loyalty in the gospel. And an idol is anything in your life, anything in your life, that if Jesus were to call you to forsake, you would refuse to give up. Anything about which you would say to Jesus, Lord, I'll read your word, I'll go to your church, but this one part of my life, you cannot have it. Do Christians have those parts of their lives? Absolutely they do. How many times have we counseled with someone? Have we worked with someone that says, I'll come to church, I'll read the Bible, I'll tithe, but there's this one thing in my life that I will not give up. We must say to them what Jesus said. Well then, you can't be his disciple. For you to say that in your heart, Lord, I will not give it up, is to commit the sin of idolatry. I don't know what that thing is for you. Perhaps some prized possession. Perhaps a personal relationship. Could be something as basic as a radio station. A few garments in the closet. For the rich young ruler, it was his money. Lord, I'll keep the commandments. I will follow you. And Jesus, seeing his heart, what did he do? He put his finger right on the nose of his idol. Go and sell all that you have. Oh no, Jesus, I can't do that. I want to follow you, but I want my money more. Are there things in your life that you want more than following after Christ? May God reveal them to you and give you the grace to forsake them and repent of idolatry. You must understand that the admonition in verse 14 is not a one-time decision. This is not something that you did the moment that you first believed. Yes, I fled idolatry. No, this is to be something that characterizes our lives as followers of Christ. Why? Because every day we are bombarded by idols that compete for our affections. Even so, every day must we be fleeing from idolatry. Don't be so proud with me as to think that you don't struggle with these things. As shameful as it is, (laughs) we fight this battle every day as the people of God. My battle fights the moment I wake up. Am I going to check Facebook and see what everyone's been saying about me in our church? I wonder if that sermon got any comments on it. Or am I going to check his word? Am I going to get on the phone and shoot the breeze with a buddy? Or am I going to be faithful to my times of prayer? Am I going to lust at that immodestly dressed woman at the supermarket? Or am I going to fight to maintain my purity? Am I going to get in my study and prepare so that I have something to say to the people of God on the Lord's Day? Or am I going to waste my time with frivolous entertainment? You say, preacher, what does any of that have to do with idolatry? Everything! Everything, because all of these things redound to the ultimate question of who do I love most? Who do I love most? Who has first place in my heart? Is it Christ? Or is it the satisfaction of my desires? Is it myself? 
good things can be idols. Spouses can become idols. Churches can become idols. Ministries can become idols. No, may Christ, may Christ be preeminent in our hearts. May we be characterized as a people who flee idolatry. Then in verse 15, continuing to drive home this admonition, it's as if Paul says, brothers and sisters, you know what I'm saying is true. He says to them, I speak as to wise men. I don't think he's being sarcastic here, though he's, he's uh, done that before in the earlier chapters, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, right? No, I think what Paul is saying is, you're wise. Judge what I'm saying. Tell me I'm wrong. Cut through all the excuses. Cut through all the self-righteous, self-justifying platitudes. Don't we do that in our own mind? Well, technically, I wasn't sinning because technically, just cut through all the technicalities. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we ask the Spirit to search our own hearts, we will know when we're flirting with idolatry instead of fleeing idolatry. If you, again, if you were saved out of a particular sin, if you're saved out of alcoholism and you have a propensity towards abuse, can you honestly say that you're fleeing drunkenness if you go down to the bar to hang out with your old buddies? Is spending time alone with someone from the opposite sex that you're not married to, can you honestly say that you're fleeing fornication? Or are we just giving our flesh an occasion to fulfill its lusts? So Paul is asking them this question. He's saying, can you really tell me, you who were saved out of idolatry, can you really tell me that going down to the temple and sitting at the feast, you're not, you're, you're not flirting with idolatry? You're going to tell me that? Can you say that you're fleeing it, brothers and sisters? Well, this is the question Paul is asking the Corinthians. It's the admonition, but it's only half of his thesis, okay? So... I hope that this sermon does not lose its coherence, but we need to now shift gears and we need to look at verse 16. We've seen his admonition, but now I want to show you the analogy. The analogy, verse 16. Remember, the thesis is what? We are to flee idolatry because idolatry brings us into communion with demons even as the Lord's Supper brings us into communion with Christ. So in order to understand this analogy... We must understand the biblical teaching of the Lord's Supper. Verse 16, Paul asks these questions which both assume a positive answer. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? There are two principal questions that must be answered if this analogy is to make sense. How does the Lord's Supper bring the church into communion with one another and with Christ? And what does it mean to partake of Christ and his shed blood and his broken body? I wrestled in my preparation over how deeply to explore this analogy but as I asked these questions to myself, I, I really believe that it would be beneficial for us as a church to look at these questions because I, I think that there may be some that wouldn't answer them or wouldn't know how to answer them. So let's, let's look at these questions. Paul's primary objective in this text is not to explain the Lord's Supper. Okay, I need to be honest with you. However, 
verses 16 and 17 do undergird several key principles regarding the supper. And I believe that it would be most beneficial based upon where we're at as a church, as a body, to slow down and give these verses a more extensive consideration. So bear with me as we do that. What does Paul mean when he asserts that the cup of blessing is the communion of the blood of Christ? And what does he mean when he says that the bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ? Well, throughout church history, there have been four predominant views on the supper. Four predominant views. Number one, there is the Roman Catholic view of the supper. The Roman Catholic view of the supper teaches what is called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the view that the substance of the elements are transformed, right? That's where you see transubstantiation. The substance of the elements are transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ with only the appearance of bread and wine remaining. So after the priest consecrates the elements, when you look up front, you will see what looks like bread and wine, but really, literally, it's the physical body and blood of Christ. That's the Roman Catholic view, transubstantiation. Thus, communicants partake of Christ physically, and the organ of reception is their mouth. The organ of reception is their mouth. Because Christ is really and physically present in the elements, they teach that it is impossible to partake of Christ apart from the elements. Therefore, they assign a salvific efficacy to the bread and the wine. They teach that ordinarily, reception of communion is essential for salvation. That's the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, the view of transubstantiation. Well, secondly, there's the Lutheran view of the Supper. And the Lutherans teach a view called consubstantiation. So we have the substantiation, but instead of trans, it's con. And they teach that the substance of the bread and wine coexist with the body and the blood of Christ. Um, this view is similar to transubstantiation, as much of Lutheranism is similar to Roman Catholicism. But the essential difference is that the Lutheran view teaches that the bread and wine remain literally the bread and wine. Okay, so there, it doesn't become the physical body and blood of Christ. It remains bread and wine. However, they teach that Christ is physically present in, with, and under the elements. This view is also called the, the view of local presence. Uh, it's often explained with the analogy of a sponge in water. If you take a sponge and you dip it in a bucket of water, you know that you have two substances there. You have a sponge and you have water, but you couldn't differentiate them. Wherever the sponge is, there's water. Wherever the water is, there's the sponge, right? That's the Lutheran view of the supper. Uh, the, the commonality there is what? That the, the organ of reception remains the mouth. And so they, again, they assign a, a salvific efficacy to the supper. The third view that's, that's popular is the view, uh, the, it's called the Zwinglian view, is popularized by Ulrich Zwingli. Some of you may be familiar with that name. He was a Swiss reformer. And Zwingli taught that the supper was purely a memorial. Purely a memorial. Christ is not present in the supper in any way other than 
that the elements help us to remember what Christ has done, and there's no grace being communicated through the elements at all in any way, shape, or form. It's just a time of remembrance. That's the Zwinglian view. This is also the most common view in, in Baptist churches and non-denominational churches today, the, the Zwinglian view. But there is a fourth view, the Reformed view, or sometimes it'll be referred to as Calvin's view, and that is the view of spiritual presence in the supper. This view teaches that Christ is not physically present in the supper, but he is present spiritually. He's present spiritually. It's not transubstantiation, and it's not consubstantiation, but it does view the supper as something more than a mere memorial. The elements are signs, but not empty signs. This view holds that Christ is mystically present in a special and unique way when his church assembles to observe the Lord's Supper in a way that he's not present any other time. There's something special about this ordinance. But because Christ is spiritually present, not physically present, okay? Here's the key distinctive. The organ of reception is not the mouth. The organ of reception is faith. We receive him through faith when we partake of the supper. And because we receive him through faith in the supper, this is what I want you to understand. The supper cannot be necessary for salvation, but on the other hand, faithful partaking of the supper requires that you possess saving faith. This is why the table must be fenced, and unbelievers must be exhorted to come to Christ before they come to the table. And it is this view that was adopted by our particular Baptist forefathers, and they confessed this view in our confession, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, in chapter 30, in paragraph 7, they say this concerning the Lord's Supper, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith Really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, that is through the mouth, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ, being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. And the very first proof text that they use in this uh, this, this paragraph is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. They believed, as do we, that in the supper, Christ is inviting his church to commune with him and with each other in a special way. And so to the question of how do we partake of Christ in the supper, we answer, not corporally through the mouth as the Catholics and the Lutherans teach, nor only through remembrance, as Zwingli taught, but spiritually, through faith, as Christ is present with us when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Therefore, we understand the Supper to be a means of sanctifying grace. And if this language scares you, let me, let me just simply explain it to you with another element of grace and a means of grace that, that you are very familiar with, and that is your Bible. When you read the Bible, 
and you receive the Word of God with a heart of faith, God uses this book, He uses this Word to nourish your soul and sanctify you. When you are with your brothers and sisters in fellowship, here this morning, if you are worshiping God with a heart of faith, He is sanctifying you right now, giving you grace. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Notice that Paul says that it is the cup of blessing which we bless. This does not mean, as the Catholics teach, that the priest consecrates the element to be an inherent blessing. But it means that we pray that God might bless the supper and use it for its appointed end in our lives. This is why before we partake of the elements, we pray over them. Just as we pray a blessing over our common meals to nourish our bodies, so we pray over the supper that it might nourish our souls. To partake of Christ in the supper is to partake of all his benefits. Then look at what Paul says in verse 17. He, he's, he's explaining this analogy. And I think, it's, I think it's, it's important. You say, why did you just spend all that time explaining that? Because if you don't have a proper view of the Lord's Supper, his whole analogy about uh, how communing with idols communes us with idolatry will make no sense. If you hold to the memorial view of this, a pure memorial view of the Supper, there's no way for you to commune with idols when you come to the Supper or when you come to a pagan feast, Right? Well, if you hold to some sort of Roman Catholic view that you're only communing with a physical reception, then, then you can go to the temple, you can sit at meat, you can be there at that idolatrous celebration, just don't put the meat in your mouth. Right? So it's important that we have a proper view of the supper. Now, verse 17, having seen that the supper is a communion with Christ, we now also see that it's a communion with one another. Notice what he says. Verse 17, he says, For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. We, as the church, are many. There's multiple people that make up a New Testament church. But we are made one bread and one body by virtue of our coming together as a church to commune at the supper. That's what unites us. The thing that unites us as a New Testament church is that we all partake of the supper together. This is why the Lord's Supper is essential to our identity as a church in all churches. And it's why members of this church are expected to be faithful at the times we've set aside to celebrate the supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that you cannot observe individually, nor can you observe it apart from the church, because that's who Jesus gave the ordinance to was the church. And so to state it very plainly, if you're not regularly communing with the church, apart from providential hindrance, you're not a member in good standing of the church. There was a day in church history when, when communion uh, was even synonymous with membership. You, you read the old particular Baptist church books and you'll read things like, uh, the church uh, uh, in London voted to receive such and such into their communion. And what they meant by that is they, they received them into the membership of the church. Lastly, I want you to notice that it is the cup, the cup, and the bread which we break. Though not primary in importance, we do strive to follow the symbolism that these verses present. And there is great symbolism in these verses. Perhaps if you're wondering why we do some of the particular things we do, maybe this verse will help you. Paul says it is the cup. That is why we all partake 
of the same substance poured out from the same bottle. Because it is the cup, and it is that symbolism of all of us being cleansed by the same blood shed by the same man on the same cross. It's a unity there. And notice, Paul says it is the bread which we break. If I could be terse, the use of prepackaged wafers simply does not convey the imagery that the Bible portrays in the supper. Would we say that a church who uses prepackaged wafers and thimbles of grape juice is not truly partaking of the Lord's Supper? Of course not. Of course not. Uh, though I've heard men make that argument, uh, it just is idiotic to make such a statement because you're elevating the symbolism above the meaning of the supper itself. However, we do want to follow the symbolism to the best we can. When we pass that one bread and we pass that wine that was poured out from the same bottle, we are saying to one another, I belong to you and you belong to me and together we belong to Christ. Having laid out these truths regarding the supper, we now apply them to the present discussion in 1 Corinthians 10. What Paul wants the Corinthians to understand is that what is true regarding our communion and fellowship with him in the supper is also true of our communion and fellowship with demons when we engage in idolatry. I really believe that having spent this time explaining the Lord's Supper, that the remainder of the analogy is just simple to you. You understand the dangers of idolatry. Engaging in idolatry brings us into religious fellowship with demons that are behind those idols. This is the analogy. Paul accompanies this New Testament analogy, thirdly, with the illusion. Verse 18, there is an illusion, an Old Testament illusion. He says here, Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And the answer is, of course they are. Of course they are. To partake of a Jewish sacrifice in a Jewish holy place was an act of Jewish worship. So too is partaking of a pagan sacrifice as a pagan sacrifice in a pagan temple an act of pagan worship. That's simply the point that Paul is trying to make here to the church. And he's trying to explain to them that you do not have the liberty to go back to the idolatry just because you now have been enlightened to the truth. I I, I don't want to overstep here, but brothers and sisters, I would not ever dream of attending a Catholic Mass. You say, well, there's no harm in it, brother. You know, you know uh, that, that, that... Catholicism is a false religion. You know that. You know that that, that priest is not really transforming the, the, the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of Christ. And so you could go with a, with a free conscience. Yes, I understand what you're saying, but I know what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. Flee from idolatry. Amen. If you are convinced, as I hope you are and as I am, that the Mass is one of the most idolatrous institutions that has ever been devised, where they re-crucify and re-sacrifice Jesus Christ on a weekly basis, then as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we are called to flee from that. Amen. We're called to flee from that. We love 
our Catholic friends. We love our Catholic co-workers. We plead with them to turn from trusting in their own works and trusting in the Mass to save them and to rest in the finished work of Christ. That was, that was Luther's position. That was Calvin's position. That was Knox's position. They were all saved out of Catholicism. Luther spent years of his life flagellating himself, beating himself. Why? Because he was part of a religious system that taught him that his salvation was dependent on the performance of his own works. Read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, and read, I think it's chapter 6 on the insanity of Luther. The story there about Luther instituting the first Mass after he was, he was an ordained priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Read his comments on that. And then ask yourself if, well, you know, it's, it doesn't make any difference because I'm a Christian and I know the truth, so therefore I can go wherever, do whatever. No, it's idolatry, brothers and sisters. It's idolatry. We're called to flee from it. Well, hopefully this sermon has whetted your appetite for the remainder of this paragraph in verses 19 through 22. But I trust that slowing down and explaining the principles from which Paul is arguing, namely the nature of the Lord's Supper, will give his argument a greater thrust as we consider it next week. But I don't want any of us to leave here today and justify ourselves of being innocent of idolatry simply because we've never attended a feast of a pagan temple. We may not attend the worship services of false religions, but we all struggle to subdue those idols in our heart and in our lives that daily contest the place of Jesus Christ in our affections and our devotions. If Paul were writing this letter to us, to this church, what forms of idolatry might he confront in us, in you? May we pray that God would reveal our most precious idols to us and give us the grace to amputate them from our lives. Go home and examine your heart. Examine the use of your time. Examine the way you spend your money. Examine the things that you think about and that you meditate upon. And as you do, may you seek to ensure that Christ has the preeminence in all that you are and all that you do. May he bring us as a people into greater conformity to Jesus Christ. And, and let me get, leave you with this word of encouragement. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are saved and secured in Christ, you have no fear. You have no fear in laying out and confessing your idols to him. He already knows about them. Let your heart become bare and naked before the eyes of him with whom you have to do. He will not cast you out. He will not turn you away. But he will be faithful to give you the grace to destroy and smash those idols in your life. Amen. May we yield our hearts to him and his spirit. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater sense of loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, may we flee idolatry that we might be consecrated to you alone as our God and Savior. We love you because you first loved us. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.